family. How you doing? Good. How many of you guys have seen the movie? Uh, this one's old. Um, the Truman Show. All right, you've seen The Truman Show. Okay. How about I Am Legend? Okay. Am I the only one that feels like here in Okinawa, we're living in The Truman Show while the rest of the world burns with Will Smith and I Am Legend? It's insane. Saying, um, it's really, it's really kind of crazy just to hop on social media or just any one of the news outlets. It doesn't matter which direction they leaned. I'm not really worried about your preference in news right now. It really doesn't matter where you go. Uh, the, the world, Rome is literally on fire. Uh, you know, the world burns. Um, no church that I really know of, save just maybe a handful, are actually meeting in person today or tomorrow, really outside of Okinawa. I'm sure there are some but my brother in Italy and all across Europe, all of our partner churches across the states, just most of them that I know of are, are live streaming. Um, they're making that choice because they want to honor our Father by submitting to the local authorities appointed over them and because they want to love their neighbors well. So they're very commendable choices for not gathering. So I just wanted to say publicly I care about those reasons too. The other elders here at the church care about those reasons. So us meeting is not us saying we're oblivious or we don't care. It's just us saying we're kind of living in the Truman Show in Okinawa. So the authorities appointed over us have not given any restrictions or asked us not to meet. So that's one reason. And as to the best of our knowledge, there is no immediate threat to our neighbors, those who are older or you know, compromised in their immune system. So there's not a reason for us not to gather. If those reasons were to change, I just want you to know we would seek to honor Christ by loving our neighbor and submitting to authorities like our other friends have done already in other parts of the world. Until that changes, as long as you guys are going to work and going to school, we will likely continue to meet um, just like this. I just want you to know that. So we're not oblivious, but we, let's just acknowledge like we are living in the Truman Show here right now. So uh, that's why we're here. Um, I guess the only thing that's really changed, if you do need to use the restroom during the service, uh, just stop by the sound booth. They'll give you your square of toilet paper and... <laughs> Otherwise, we're pressing on like nothing's changed for now. All right, let's pray, and uh, we'll get right down to work. Father, we thank you for your grace. Uh, I pray that you would bring our hearts to life as we look to you and your word this morning. Give us humility to see where we have wandered from you, even this week, even this morning, and to, to confess that to you and to repent of it. Father, I pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance, and I pray that in repenting, we would know life and joy and peace. Father, for those areas in our hearts and our souls that are broken, we want to give those to you and trusting you to make them whole in your way and in your time. Uh, the older we get, the more we recognize that we can't rush that being made whole. And quite honestly, we just can't even do it ourselves. And so we give it to you. We ask that you would make us whole deep in those places that are still broken, either from our own rebellion or from the rebellion of other people acting on us, or just from the reality of living in a broken, broken world while we await uh, the completion of your redemptive work. So Father, please give us strength, give us grace, uh, give us healing, help us to look to you um, and to love you more as we see you for who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name.
Amen. So last week we began a new series exploring 1 Corinthians, and our series theme is this, Gospel Formed, Becoming Who We Are, A United Family in a Fractured City. We were reminded last week that the church, God's family, exists to display the beauty of the gospel to a broken people. The church exists to display the faithfulness of Christ to a fractured city. But the church in Corinth was divided just like the city. And this church was fracturing because she was shaped more by the culture than she was by the gospel. And so this church had nothing beautiful to display to a broken city and a breaking people because she was broken. And that is tragic. It's absolutely tragic. But it's also the reason that we have this letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, who had planted the church, he'd started the church, he'd spent a year and a half with them, he loved them. He writes this letter to them to help this church become less culture-formed and more gospel-formed. His aim was to anchor them in the gospel and to point them back to Jesus so that they would become who God said that they were and who they were meant to be, a united family in a fractured city. And what we need to acknowledge right at the top is this letter holds the very same purpose for our church family today, just as it did for that church 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit, through this letter, calls our hearts back to the gospel, points us back to Jesus, calls us to repent of those ways where our lives and the life of our church family are more shaped and influenced by the culture, and that we would submit ourselves to Jesus so that we can be shaped by the gospel, so that we can display the beauty of the gospel to a broken world. One of the ways that Corinth, well, man, Corinth was just fractured for many, many reasons. And at the, roost of, at the root of most of those fractures was pride. Corinthians were obsessed with personal reputation, individual rights, and self-advancement. The church in Corinth was also fractured, as we said, for many reasons. And again, the root of most of those fractures was pride. Unfortunately, being shaped by the culture, the church was obsessed with all the same things. Personal reputation, individual rights, and self-advancement. And one of the ways that First Community Church of Corinth's pride was showing up was through bragging. Bragging was dividing the church and distorting the beauty of the gospel that she was meant to display. Some of that bragging showed up as bragging on favorite pastors or leaders. That's what we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul had to call them out because they were like, man, we prefer Paul, so we follow him. Others would say, no, Paul's old and doesn't really communicate real well. We like younger Apollos. He's just, he gets it. He's relevant. He's a better communicator. While others preferred fiery Peter. They just wanted more Peter, and so they wouldn't listen to um, Paul or Apollos. And we do the same things today. We prefer Matt Chandler or Francis Chan or John Piper or fill in the blank for whatever name we insert in there besides Jesus, we are bragging on a person and not on Christ and we're actually sowing seeds of division um, in God's family. We do it at a local level too. We prefer this pastor or that missional community leader or this Bible study leader and we sow seeds of division. And what was happening was they were bragging and their bragging was dividing the church and distorting the gospel. Now, some bragging showed up as kind of personal, more personal. It was bragging on themselves. It's what we might call in our culture, humble bragging. Humble bragging. 
We didn't see that in the opening last week, but we'll, be, we'll see plenty of examples throughout the letter as we press on. What is humble bragging, you might ask? Humble bragging by the authoritative uh, voice of the Urban Dictionary is when you try to get away with bragging about yourself by couching it in a phony show of humility. For example, I really wanted to come up with a good example of humble bragging for you, but I couldn't because I spent way too much time in the Bible and in prayer this morning, so I didn't have time. I wanted to preach <laughs> I wanted to preach a good sermon to you this morning, but I'm exhausted because staying up all night to pray for the coronavirus situation is just exhausting, right? Humble bragging, veiled in humility. So members of this church, we'll see it as we go on, they bragged about their wisdom. They bragged about their spiritual gifts. They bragged about their faith and how mature they were in their faith. Um, while others were afraid, they would just boldly say, oh, the coronavirus doesn't concern me at all. Like, I'm not scared of anything. Um, they bragged about their generosity and on and on and on. There's lots of examples in the letter of 1 Corinthians about bragging, whether it was humble bragging or not. Humble bragging was dividing the church and distorting the gospel. It was a serious problem. And family, culturally, we need to again acknowledge that our culture today is nearly identical to the culture of Corinth back in that day. And to the extent that we're shaped by the culture rather than the gospel, these same problems that surfaced in the life of the Corinthian church surfaces in the life of our church as well. Their problems tend to be our problems too. Now, interestingly, when Paul writes this letter, he does not tell them to stop bragging. The gospel does not eradicate bragging. The gospel reorients our bragging on Jesus. You are created to brag. You know that, right? Like deep in your soul, in your DNA, you are created to brag. You can't help it. We brag on whatever or whomever we are most passionate about. doesn't matter if it's sports or just fill in the blank. Wherever your passions lie, your words will follow. We, we are braggers by nature. We are created to brag most on our God, his word, and his work in this world and in the lives of other people. That's what we're created for. But in our rebel tendencies, we tend to brag on me, myself, and we come up with words like humble brag to make it sound more virtuous or less sinister. And when we are rescued through the gospel, guys, here, we've got to understand this. Our bragging is not eradicated. It's reoriented on Jesus. And what we'll see throughout the letter is this. Learning to brag on Jesus helps us become who we are, a united family in a fractured city. Learning to brag on Jesus flips our insecure pride because in our insecure pride, we lift ourselves up while putting others down. But bragging on Jesus flips that insecure pride into confident humility. And it's a confident humility that is rooted in Jesus, not myself, Confident in who he says that I am, understanding I don't have anything to prove, I don't have anything to earn, and quite honestly, it doesn't matter what other people think of me. What matters is what Jesus says about me at the core, and that's, that's, that's deeply liberating, and it replaces this, this um, insecure pride with confident humility. Learning to brag on Jesus crushes division and roots out gospel distortion from the life of the church, and it replaces those things with unity and gospel beauty in the life of God's family. 
And that's why Paul wraps our passage today with this in verse 31. Let me, let me just start you at the end with, with this line. He says, let the one who boasts, boast. Notice what Paul says about the person who brags. He says, let him brag. Let the bragger brag is what Paul's saying. Brag away. Paul didn't say stop bragging, but he does add three very important words to that permission, right? Very important words. He says this, let him brag in the Lord. Let the one who brags brag. Let him humble brag in the Lord. That's not eradication. That's not stop doing this bad thing. That's reorientation, taking what our rebellion has ruined and reorienting it on and around Jesus. Now, we know Paul is talking about Jesus when he uses this title, Lord. We know that, for example, from the, the opening to this letter. Here's chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul uses that word Lord throughout this letter, letter he's speaking of Jesus. Lord means he's our God and he's our King. So Paul says, listen, or he says to learn to brag on your rescuing king, Jesus. Learn to brag on his word and his work as you see it in life all around you, and as you see his word and work in the lives of the people around you. Let's call that gospel bragging for the purposes of this morning. Listen, guys, gospel bragging will be one of the most Christ-honoring and others-encouraging habits that you can cultivate in your life. You want to be somebody whose voice regularly points people to Jesus in life-giving ways? Like you want to be somebody whose voice regularly speaks life into the hearts of other people? Cultivate this habit of gospel bragging. And here's our big idea from today's passage. We become who we are, united family in a fractured city, as we learn to brag on the better words and works of Jesus. So let's read our passage together now. And as we read, I think we'll see that big idea kind of fleshed out in two ways, or two reasons why our bragging should be reoriented on Jesus and away from ourselves. Here's the first one. In Jesus, the Father gives us true power and wisdom. And the second one is this, in Jesus, the Father gives us the longed for status that our hearts spend a lifetime searching for. So in Jesus, the Father gives us true power and wisdom. And secondly, in Jesus, the Father gives us longed for status. Let me read for us. I'll begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, and I'll read down to 31 if you want to follow along. Paul writes this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age, the philosopher? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, listen to this, the world, that's us outside of Jesus, did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the gospel, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. 
For consider, your, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, I'd underline those words, because of him, you now are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, let the one who brags, brag in the Lord. Paul's saying, as a church, we become who we are, a united family in a fractured city, as we learn to reorient our bragging on the better words and works of Jesus. So you probably notice that this passage begins and ends with quotes from the Old Testament. Did you see him? See how the text was kind of set off a little bit? These two quotes are meant to serve us like when you're driving at nighttime in Okinawa and you're approaching a construction zone and you got those pinwheel twirly things that are just flashing neon lights at you that actually serve the opposite purpose and just about run you off the road. But what do they do? They get your attention. Like I got something to tell you. So these two Old Testament quotes are our pinwheel neon lights that are flashing at us saying like, I got something really important to say to you. Um, here, you need to pay attention to this. Don't miss it. And what these two quotes do is two things. One, they help us see how broken the culture is for the church in Corinth. He's not talking about the city now. He's talking about the brokenness that exists in God's family. That's the first neon road sign, if you will. But the second one is pointing us to this reality that Jesus wants to make these broken things beautiful. He wants to restore, and he will as the church is less formed by the culture and more formed by the gospel. Well, how does that happen? How are we less formed by the culture and more formed by the gospel? Simple, really. Jesus will move this church from broken to beautiful as they listen to his voice. And guys, that paradigm is true in all of life. It's not just for our church. That's for you personally. Wherever there is brokenness in your soul, that brokenness is moved to beauty and wholeness as you listen to the voice of Jesus and respond to him. Where there is brokenness in your relationship, whether it's your marriage or in the workplace, whatever relationship it is, Jesus will move you from brokenness to beauty as you submit yourself to his voice and you listen to him and respond. That's what he is calling them to. The first quote in verse 19 comes from Isaiah 29. It's a quote that's Isaiah 29, 14, but let's back it up into verse 13 a little bit just so we see the big picture. And here's what, I, what God says through the prophet Isaiah. He says this. Again, he's talking about his people, his family. He says, because my people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, just lip service, while their hearts are far from me. We drop down to the last half of verse 14. Here's our quote. So here's what God will do because his people are just paying lip service and the heart is not there. The wisdom of their wise men will die. 
There will be a death of wisdom and the discernment of their discerning shall be hidden. The discerning people will be blind and won't have discernment anymore. So this is a clear pronouncement of judgment from a holy God to a rebellious people. And what is that judgment? The father saying, my people will think of themselves as wise, but their wisdom will be dead. They will think themselves discerning, but discernment will be out of reach for them. It will be hidden. Their wisdom is a pseudo-wisdom. It's not for real because it is not rooted in me or my word. And because it's not rooted in me, it's because it's not rooted in my word, rather than being a wisdom that leads them to life because it's true, it's going to be a false or pseudo-wisdom that leads them to death. This is the sobering reality within the church in Corinth. Remember, guys, we're not talking about the people in the city alone. We're also talking about those who claim to be a part of God's family. But the Father has every intention of working for their good. And we see that in the second Old Testament quote, which wraps this section up. It shows us that God intended to take what was broken and make it beautiful through the gospel. Here's the second quote. It's taken from Jeremiah 9. Let me give you kind of the full context of that. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. The second quote is this, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And here's where it comes from. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. There's a reorientation of boasting from rebel strength to Jesus himself. Let him boast in that he, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, for in these things I delight. Now, this second quote is also taken from a passage which is a pronouncement of judgment. Jeremiah 9 is a sobering, sobering, sobering passage. And we need to take note of that. So it, just like that quote from Isaiah, there's a warning on the front end and there's a warning on the back end. But it's more than a warning. It's more than a pronouncement of judgment. In Jeremiah 9, these two verses from which Paul quotes are a call to you and me. It's a call to God's family to return to him from their rebel tendencies and to listen to his voice. And in listening to his voice, to reorient your boasting off of yourself and onto Jesus, your creator and rescuing king. It's a call to reorient our boasting away from our perceived wisdom, might, and wealth. That's really what Paul is going to be getting after. It's just a perception of strength. It's a perception of wisdom. It's a perception of wealth. And the gospel reorients our boasting away from these perceptions and reorients them on the better words and works of Jesus. So we already know the church in Corinth is breaking. She's divided. Her gospel culture is distorted. Her people are just like the people of Jeremiah's day, tempted to run after and brag about wisdom, power, and nobility. Did you see that as we read in verse 26? Paul's rattling off these temptations for them. It's the same exact stuff. Wisdom, power, and nobility. Or in nobility, you can think being born into wealth and being born into uh, influence or reputation. Same exact temptations that Jeremiah lists. Uh, show up for Paul in his letter to the, the church in Corinth. But through this letter, 
The father calls his family back to a place of life and beauty, away from death and brokenness, back to life and beauty, back to fulfilling her purpose, back to displaying the beauty of the gospel to a broken people, back to displaying the faithfulness of Christ to a fractured city. And guys, this letter serves the same purpose for us this morning. This letter is for us, God the Father speaking to you as a son or as a daughter through his spirit, calling you back, calling your heart back to the gospel, calling your affections back to Jesus, and honestly calling us to reorient our tendency to brag on ourselves. And even if we don't do it out loud, I don't know about you, I do know about you because the Bible tells me, we all just have this inner voice that is the most prolific bragger of sorts. And it does one of two things, depending on how you're feeling in your circumstances. It will either just boost you right up. That's not the only thing it does. It'll just speak you right up on inside, or it'll crush you. It just brings you down and speaks condemnation. It, both, both, both are pride, the roots of pride, uh, both going in different directions. One to lift you up and point you away from your dependency on Jesus. The other one crashing you down and condemning you, pulling you away from the sufficiency of Jesus. And so how, are, how will our hearts be reoriented? How will we get there? How will they get there? Well, in our passage, being reminded that in Jesus, the Father gives us true power and wisdom. And being reminded that in Jesus, the Father gives us longed-for status and reorienting our bragging on him. So let's look at that first idea in the text. The gospel reminds us that in Jesus, the Father gives us true power and wisdom. Paul says this. He says, guys, listen. Jesus sent me to you to preach the good news of the gospel to you. And I know that your culture has trained you to place a high value on the speaker's ability to win over an audience based on his charm, based on her charisma, based on his eloquence, his sophisticated speech, or his appearance of wisdom. Paul says, it's all fine and good. Got it. I, I get it. That's your culture. I just want you to know this, he says. That's all show. That's all a shell game. It's all a show. And I know that you've come to value charisma more than you do the content of a message. You value the integrity or the worth of a speaker more on their charisma and their ability to just keep your attention than you do the content of a message. Paul says, I know that, you, that entertainment is worth more to you than the truth. And so to make sure that you would see that the gospel does not need to be propped up by any of these things, I chose not to roll into town like one of your entertainers. I chose this so that you would see that the gospel stands on its own merits. I chose to focus on content, not my charisma. You had to see that the power of the gospel is rooted in the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, not in a speaker's skill to persuade an audience. The power of the gospel is rooted in the power of God himself. And because it is, it just needs to be spoken, period. In fact, Paul says, if I had relied on my own ability to win you over, I would have, and here's Paul, here are Paul's own words, I would have emptied the cross of Christ of its power. Guys, that's really good news for you and me because most of us really struggle deep down with confidence to talk about the gospel to people. One, we know we'll be thought of as a fool 
And two, we're like, how in the world do I articulate this to a modern mind in a way that will persuade them and cause them to believe? And what's the hope? What's the hope here in this? The hope is this. The power of the gospel is rooted in the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, not in your ability to persuade your listener. It just needs to be spoken. The weight of persuading a heart does not rest on your shoulders. The weight of changing a mind is not yours to carry. In fact, because it's not something that you can perform. The weight that is ours to carry is the weight of speaking the gospel with clear words and no fronting. That's ours to carry. But even in that, God gives us grace. It just needs to be spoken. The gospel stands in its own power and strength. Paul says in verse 18, he says, guys, listen, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And immediately he points us to that quote from Isaiah, helping us understand that this is actually a fulfillment of God's pronouncement of judgment. In other words, in our rebellion, wisdom is dead. In our rebellion, discernment is hidden from us. And so as part of God's judgment for our rebellion, if left to ourselves, the gospel sounds like a foolish story. It's crazy. The gospel is nonsense. It's make-believe. Like you, you're telling me you actually believe that? Like what about science? Like do you believe in science? You just believe the gospel? You realize it's like 2,000 years old and it's copied over and over again. And just people wrote that down. You really believe this? Did you go to school? It's crazy. In our rebellion, it's nonsense. Then Paul says to those who are being saved, those are two very important words, the way that they're written, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Is being saved active or passive? If you're the recipient of that action. Well, that was a terrible way to ask that question. I went to school. <laughs> if I am being saved, I am not doing anything to accomplish that work. That's all I'm trying to say. If I'm the recipient of that saving work, it's just a, I'm just receiving this gift. Now, I know with all the coronavirus drama, we are not reading any other news, not really seeing anything that's going on. Um, but earlier in the week, I actually did see this story there's a 10-year-old boy in the country of Turkey who discovered that a small puppy had fallen to the bottom of an oil well, like an abandoned well. It was 30 feet deep or so. He couldn't get down there himself. He couldn't save the puppy, so he did what you should do. He picks up his phone, because that's what you have when you're 10 now. And he called, it doesn't matter where you live, and he called emergency services. And they show up, and they realize that nobody in the crew can get themselves down into the well. Nobody. The only one who fits, the only one who's light enough is the 10-year-old boy. And this is, I love cultures like this. What do they do? They let the 10-year-old boy rescue the puppy. Like that's how life is supposed to be lived. Um, he probably signed a waiver before they lowered him down there. I, I'm sorry for the quality of the picture. Um, if I hadn't spent the entire night praying for the coronavirus, like, humble brag, humble brag. And just full disclosure, I spent the entire night sleeping. So there's that. Not enough of it, but most of it. So here's the 10-year-old boy being lowered down and the oil slick puppy. And there's the, you know, the picture when he gets, 
he gets to the top. The puppy was being saved by the 10-year-old boy. The puppy was powerless to get himself out of the well. He couldn't climb up. He couldn't jump. There's nothing. He lacks the strength and the opposable thumbs to like climb a rope. Can't get up. He was being saved by the boy. Guys, Paul speaks about our rescue in the same way. We are the equivalent of that puppy at the bottom of the well. Powerless to get ourselves out. Powerless to accomplish our own rescue. But we are being saved. God acts upon us, rebels, to save us. Paul is saying it is the mercy of God at work in a rebel heart which turns the gospel from folly in our perception to power in our experience. The word of the cross, the gospel, is the power. It, it is in itself, it is the power of God at work in a rebel's life. And when you experience the Father's mercy, what was once folly to you becomes power. Paul says, look, I'll prove it to you. And he asks these questions. And look, the letter was being read out loud. So these questions would have been asked out loud, just like this in a church's gathering. So let's ask them out loud. He goes, where is the one in your church family who's wise? And what he means by that is, where is the person in our church family who stumbled upon Jesus and believed the gospel through their own wisdom? And Paul says, oh, wait, like, can you, would you be willing to self-identify yourself? All right, so let's ask another question. He says, where is the scribe? You know, we don't use that word, but in other words, he's saying, where is the well-educated scholar? That's what a scribe was. He says, where in our church is the scholar? Where's the Dodea school teacher in the room who found Jesus through their scholarly work and believed the gospel? I'll wait. Like that's what Paul's saying after each question. Where's the debater? Where in our church family is the philosophy major who learned all his philosophy at community college? Like where's that guy? Where is the young lady who majored in philosophy and in all of her philosophizing found her way into the kingdom of God? Oh wait, Paul says. Nobody raised their hands that morning when the letter was read. Because that's not how the gospel works. In our self-perceived wisdom, self-perceived. In our self-perceived education, in our philosophical meanderings, we as rebels were rejecting the gospel as folly, as foolishness. Here's why. Because God in his judgment has made foolish, he says, the wisdom of this world. That's what Paul clarifies in verse 21. He says, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Guys, listen, not only can we not find God through our self-perceived wisdom, our education, or our philosophy, but in our rebellion, what was created by God to serve us well by pointing us to him, philosophy, science, education, all of these things, um, All of these things actually led us away from him, convincing us that the gospel is devoid of power and just full of foolishness. 
Guys, listen, Paul is not anti-intellectual by any stretch of the imagination. He loved education. He had the highest degrees of the day. He was well-educated. Paul loved philosophy. He'd go toe-to-toe with the philosophers. Paul loved science. Guys, Christians of all people should not shy away from any of those sciences. We should lean hard into philosophy. We should read well and read broadly. We should value education and not be scared of science. Paul is not anti-intellectual here, and he's not calling Christians to anti-intellectualism. He's just pointing out the effect of our rebellion on all of those things, and all of these things that we think are our strengths, according to the gospel, have actually led us away from the God who created us. Well, then how in the world, if that's true, do any of us come to know God if not through our wisdom, education, or philosophy. How do we come to know God? Paul's answer is, we don't come to know God. The answer is, God comes to us. He breaks through. Verse 29 in the second half, it says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What Paul is saying is rebels don't rationalize their way to the Father. The Father reveals himself to rebels through the power of the gospel. So he does this through the message of the gospel, which was given to rebels from Jesus himself. And Paul calls the gospel, he calls it this, the folly of what we preach. Uh, Preach, don't think church and don't think pastor. Just think sharing a message that somebody else has given to you already. So we all preach all the time because most content is not original with us anyway. So we're all preaching. We're all heralds. We're just passing along messages that have been given to us by somebody else for you. In fact, that's what 90% of you spend all of your days doing in your, at your desk. You just pass stuff on to you, other people. That's, not, that's what preaching is. So we all preach all the time. He does this through the gospel, which was given to rebels like you and me from Jesus himself. And so we don't rationalize or reason our way to the Father. We receive the gospel as an act of mercy from a kind Father in the same way that the boy lowered himself into the well and revealed himself to the puppy and brought him to life. And now that same gospel that was preached to us and in power brought our dead rebel hearts to life, we preach or we share to other people and the spirit through the power of the gospel still brings dead rebel hearts to life. The weight of bringing a dead heart to life does not rest on your shoulders. And that's a good thing because none of us have the ability or the capacity to bring a dead heart to life. In fact, your own heart was dead and we all lacked, lacked the capacity to bring life or to spark life into a dead heart. It's the power of the gospel through the work of the Spirit in us. The responsibility that is ours is to speak. Now, some in Corinth were of a Jewish background, and they tended to want signs, some compelling proof that the message of the gospel was for real. And to them, the gospel was a stumbling block, something that tripped them up, or more literally, for them, it was a scandal. For them, the Messiah was a king who was destined to rule, not destined to suffer and die the most shameful death known to man. In the Jewish belief system, to be crucified was a sign that somebody was personally cursed by God himself. So it was scandalous to them to suggest that their God-promised Messiah was crucified. He was supposed to be crushing enemies, not being crushed by his enemies. 
And many more in Corinth had Greek roots, and Greeks valued wisdom above all else. So Christ crucified was folly to the Greek mind, because Greeks had gods like Zeus and Hercules and Asclepius, and they were all-powerful. These gods defeated their enemies through projections of power, not weakness, and they were of noble origin. They were well-born gods. Jesus, on the other hand, was from West Virginia. He was, I'm sorry if that, just wherever you're from, wherever those people come from, like that's where, that's for the, for the, the day in which Jesus was born. He was from the backwoods, the high country. He was from a place where nothing good came. He was the back country of the Roman empire. Nothing good came from his hometown. He was uneducated by Greek standards, Roman standards. He was terribly unsophisticated by Greek and Roman standards. And obviously he had no power because what man who is truly destined to be king dies a shameful death on the cross? What kind of God is suffering and weak and allowing himself to be nailed to a wooden cross only to suffocate and bleed out? Not Zeus, not Hercules. That God can't save anyone. So guys, the gospel was folly to the ancient Greek mind. And in the same way, the gospel is folly to the modern American mind as well. Look, whether or not Ancestry.com linked your $179 DNA swab to ancestors in the city of Corinth, you and I are just like them. Whether the blood flows through our veins or not, we are more like them than we would like to admit. Because as rebels, the gospel tripped us up. It was foolishness. And even now as Christians, in quieter moments, we still wrestle with remaining rebel tendencies which whisper into our ears that the gospel is foolishness. You still believe this, John? You really believe this message? Dude, I love you, man. That's my boy. I love you, son. What changes our hearts from this unbelief to this belief? Paul says in verse 24, It's God's calling of us. He says, but to those who are called, the gospel is no longer foolishness. Now it's Christ, the power and wisdom of God. So what changes our hearts, according to Paul? Not personal wisdom, not your education, not philosophy, and not you, not myself. What then? The Father's call to me, in which my Father says to me, a rebel son, it's time to come home. In that moment, When the Father calls, it's an effectual, effective calling that speaks life and brings our hearts to life. And he says in that moment where he moves our heart from death to life, and he opens my blind eyes so that they have sight, and he opens my deaf ears so that I can hear. The foolish gospel now becomes beautiful. And in that moment, I see Jesus as both the wisdom and power of a merciful God, a father who brings me home in kindness rather than sending me away in judgment. But until that moment, we pursue salvation in our human nature through personal wisdom and personal power. But when the Father calls me home and through His Spirit, He awakens my soul for the first time, we see that our pursuits of self-perceived wisdom and self-perceived power are foolish and weak because we see the power of God most clearly displayed through Jesus' weakness on the cross. And we see God's wisdom displayed most clearly through the folly of a rescuing king hanging naked and ashamed in our place. 
But we only see these things when the Father calls our dead hearts to life. And we see that the foolishness of God is wiser than my best wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than my greatest strength. So how does the gospel reorient our bragging on Jesus? Man, we're seeing it in this passage. Paul reminds us, my perceived wisdom and strength are mere folly and weakness next to God. My wisdom, education, and philosophizing did not lead me home. Rather, in mercy, the Father called me home while my... My own wisdom and philosophy and education were actually leading me away from the Father. I didn't find God. God found me. I didn't pursue Jesus. Jesus pursued me. I pursued my way to the bottom of that well, and Jesus lowered himself in um, for my good. In Paul's language, I'm not, quote, saving myself. Jesus is saving me. Family, the only bragging which makes sense in a church that is rehearsing the gospel is bragging on the better words and works of Jesus. All other bragging, humble bragging or not, becomes just straight up crazy and foolishness. And we'll wrap with this. This is going to scare you because I'm going to say this is the second point, but it's really, it's the end. It's the end. The gospel reorients our hearts by reminding us that only in Jesus the Father gives us our longed-for status. Before Paul's on, Paul move, moves on, he gets more personal, and he does so by going after our idol of status. We all carry around an idol of status. Our hearts long, long, long for status. We want to be accepted, approved of, and affirmed by the people we love and respect. And so we perform. And by performing, I mean maybe you actually do work hard at what you've been asked. Like it can be a good sense of performing, but very often it's the other sense of performing. Like we're just performing, pretending. So we perform or we pretend. We position and posture ourselves. But the gospel gives us freedom by telling us the truth about ourselves and by pointing us to Jesus. Telling us that only in Jesus will our hearts find the status that we long for. Paul says it this way in verse 26. He says, consider your calling, guys. That's just his way of saying, think about who you were when the father called you into his family. Think about who you were when you were the puppy at the bottom of the well needing to be saved. Think about that. Paul says, not many of us were wise. Not many of us were wise. Not many of us were powerful. Not many of us were well-born by the world standards. We had no status to brag of. Rather, God chose those who were foolish, weak, and lower despised by our world standards. The gospel tells us this liberating truth about ourselves. And what it tells us is this, underneath the makeup, underneath the fashion, underneath the uniform, underneath all your ribbons, Underneath your physique, your body image that you work so hard for, behind all of our words that we craft so carefully and post so strategically, underneath all of those things lie folly, weakness, and lowness. And why does God choose people like that? He chooses people like that to shame rebel pride. To shame our silly attempts at humble bragging over the strength and wisdom we think we have independent of Jesus, the one who created us. He chooses people like that to expose the emptiness of our self-perceived status. Why does, the God choose, why does God choose the weak and lowly? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast, might humble brag in the presence of God. God chooses the weak and lowly so all people will finally see that in and of ourselves, we have nothing boastworthy. 
Our humble bragging is ridiculous, family. Our proud bragging is ridiculous. Any bragging that's not oriented on Jesus, the God who created us and rescued us, is insane. When we stand in God's presence, Paul says, not even the most hardened of rebels will dare breathe a single syllable of humble bragging. The words will no longer flow because they will no longer be in our hearts. But the gospel doesn't eradicate bragging. It reorients our bragging where it belongs, off of myself, onto our Father, and onto our rescuing King Jesus. Paul shows us how in verse 30 with these three words, he says, because of him, saying because of the Father, because of the mercy of the Father, because of him. Those three words, because of him, as the gospel changes our hearts, these three words become the preface for every good thing we have to say. Paul says it later in the letter, I am who I am because of him. Guys, look at this. You realize what Paul is saying right here, right? Paul is saying as clearly and as kindly as he can, and to encourage our hearts, not to discourage our hearts, no one is a Christian because of themselves. Nobody is in God's family because of their self-effort. Anyone who has heard the gospel and believed and become part of our Father's family is in the family only, here's Paul's words, because of him. Because of him. Because of him, our hearts have the status they were created for, that we long for, that we tried to find in power, education, wealth, or family reputation. Paul says that status is found in Christ and Christ alone. Because of him, because of him. Paul says, we are in Jesus. We are in Christ who has become to us wisdom from God. We are made in Jesus what we cannot be in and of ourselves and can't make ourselves. Quite honestly, wise. Like we are made wise in Jesus. So we're given that status in Christ. We're made to be righteous in Jesus, meaning that Jesus gives us right standing with our Father. So in Christ, the Father accepts us as sons and daughters. In Christ, we are fully accepted. In Christ, because of him, the Father approves of you. You have your Father's approval. He approves of you in Christ. This is not something you have to work for or earn. Jesus earned it on your behalf. You're accepted and approved and affirmed. Jesus becomes our sanctification. In Jesus, what that means is we are set apart to receive our Father's affection. And so now this is our status. We are deeply loved sons and daughters in Jesus. We are forever kept. That's what it means when Paul says Jesus is our sanctification. He has set us apart and he will never let us go. Not because we earned this, but because Jesus earned this in our place. And he has become our redemption. Meaning, man, we rebelled and in our rebellion, we broke so much. We broke so many things. In our rebellion, we straight up broke other people. In other people's rebellion, they have broken parts of us. It's all broken. We have dishonored the Father. But Jesus accomplished what I could not accomplish for myself. I couldn't make things whole. I couldn't make things right. He makes them whole. He does the work. He makes them right. Jesus proved everything. And now in Christ, I have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. The Father invites us to rest in the work of Jesus on our behalf. The father just looks at you in the eyes and says, son, you're powerless to redeem yourself. Daughter, you can't do it. You can't heal the unwell things. You can't make whole what is broken. But Jesus did that work for you. 
And my command to you, my invitation for you now is to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Rest and reorient your bragging on Jesus. That's what Paul says. Let the one who brags keep bragging on Jesus. Don't brag less, brag differently. Get to know this Jesus. He will reorient your bragging for you. Family, we become who we are, a united family in a fractured city as we learn to brag on the better words and works of Jesus. And what are those works? He called us. He brought your heart to life. He is saving us. And he has done all the work necessary on our behalf. So when we're not bragging, man, guys, that is just a sign for us. When we're not bragging on Jesus, the problem is not our bragging because our bragging's gone somewhere else. We just have to track it down and find out where our affections rest. We're bragging on something. So the solution is not to fix the bragging yourself. The solution is to run back to Jesus because in seeing him for who he is, he reorients our hearts and brings, it, brings our hearts over where, to where they to be, should be to see his beauty and to live for his fame. Guys, as we listen to his voice, please hear me because there's so much broken in us. Some of you are just straight up hurting from so many terrible things, specific dark things that have happened to you. Some of you are hurting self-inflicted wounds from your rebellion. Some of you are hurting in here because of the rebellion of other people. Some of you are hurting because you're in a relationship where it's like rebellion and rebellion coupled together and the hurting's just worse. Guys, the offer of mercy from our Father is that when we listen to his voice, he takes what is broken and makes it beautiful. He takes what is dead and gives it to life, gives it life. That's the promise for us as a church. That's a promise for your relationship. And listen, friend, that is a promise for your heart this morning. Let's pray and give God thanks for that and ask him to reorient our bragging off of ourselves and onto Jesus. Father, you are so good to us in so many ways. And so when our bragging dries up, it's not that you're not good. It's not that you're not faithful. It's that we're not seeing your goodness and your faithfulness. So Father, Father, please this morning, recapture our hearts. Through your kindness, lead us to repentance. Lead us back to you. Father, for those who are wounded, please restore life. For those who are, are breaking or broken, please make them whole in Christ. Jesus, you are so good to us. Thank you for breaking in and coming to us and rescuing us. Father, thank you for giving us true wisdom and power in Jesus. Thank you for giving us the status of deeply loved and forever kept sons and daughters. May these realities be our source of confidence and may you crush any other self-sufficient sense of confidence that lies to us and pulls our heart from Jesus. Father, thank you that you are kind and patient with us. Jesus, this morning, may your kindness lead every heart in this room to repent of our humble bragging and our attempts of self-sufficiency from you. Bring us back home and restore our joy at the feet of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.